0: The sermon text for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Listen as I read God's word. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Here ends the reading.
1: Good morning. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible or a device that has a Bible on it, to get your eyes on the text this morning and open up to Exodus uh, chapter 19. That's what we just Heard, read. Thank you, Elise, for reading that so well. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at Elmwood. Let me get things rolling here on my Kindle. There we go. All right. All right. Perfect. Let's uh, let's open up with a word of prayer here. Father, you are better to us than we deserve. You will look at each and every one of us with all of our joys and all of our flaws. And Lord, you still love us. And Lord, in your grace, you have spoken to us by your word that we might know you and come into relationship with you through your son. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to your word this morning? Lord, would you cause us to see Christ in all of his beauty? Would you point us to him with abundant clarity that we would be drawn in worship? Lord, we pray this all for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, as John had mentioned, today's Pentecost Sunday. This is where we celebrate uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, upon God's people following uh, Jesus' resurrection. And what's interesting is Pentecost actually corresponds to Israel's Feast of Weeks, uh, which celebrates the giving of the law. And as we look at today's text and as we get into stuff a little bit more next week, we're going to see Israel finally getting to the point where God is about to give them the law in the story. So it's kind of sweet. We, we didn't actually plan it this way. I, I, I told John this week, and he's like, oh, it's actually Pentecost Sunday, where what we're looking at here actually connects to a later part in the Bible story, Pentecost, that the church worldwide uh, recognizes today. But so far, uh, we've been tracking with Israel's story going from Egypt all the way to Mount Sinai. Now, I don't think we've shown a picture of Mount Sinai yet. The, the location of Sinai is actually debatable, but this right here is a picture of the traditional site, so keep this uh, in mind as you're thinking about, okay, Israel finally has arrived here. This is kind of what you need to have in your mind as they're at the foot of the mountain. But we've been recalling that Israel, uh, God had called Israel and Moses to leave the superpower Egypt, And this is like an enormous task. If you know anything about Egypt, in the ancient Near East during this time, this is a crazy thing, and yet the point is is that it wasn't meant to be done in Israel's own efforts. This was something that God was himself doing. And specifically over the sermon series, we've watched Israel journey out of Egypt as they make their way under God's provision into the wilderness towards this mountain. And now in the story, after seven weeks of traveling in the wilderness, Israel has finally made it. Now I want us to kind of feel the weight of this moment. That they finally got here. Because this is a big deal. If you recall all the way back to Moses' call to lead Israel out of Egypt, God had told him, this is the sign that that my promise is confirmed to you when you guys come to this mountain. And finally, they've left Egypt. They've seen the plagues. They've traveled seven weeks. And now they are here. And now for the rest of Exodus, the rest of the book that we're going to cover, they're going to be at the foot of this mountain. They're not going to be going anywhere. The rest of the story is right here. And in their timeline, they're at the foot of this mountain for about the next year. Okay? So the story shifts from focusing on God's redeeming work for Israel as he leads them out of Egypt. And this should lead us now to the question now they're at the foot of the mountain. Okay, now what? Now what is the story about? Now what is going to happen? What's the purpose? of what's going on here? And that's a good question because God has been preparing them in the wilderness for this moment where he's been showing them they need to be constantly dependent upon him. It's him who is the initiator of everything that they need and practically it's been a little bit of a mixed bag, right? Sometimes they do follow him and things go surprisingly well. Some miraculous things happen. We talked about them defeating the Amalekites but sometimes they rebel against God and things end up in turmoil. But I want to read the text just one more time, now that kind of we have a little bit of a context, I want to imagine them finally arriving at this mountain, and the weight of what it feels like. I was counting how many weeks we've been in our Exodus sermon series, and I believe it's about 12, I think this is the 12th sermon. So we've been coming and going on Sundays, hearing this story about what happened in the Exodus to the Israelites, but imagine for the majority of those weeks, these Israelites have been trying to survive and they finally made it so consider the weight of what's happening let me read this one more time 19 1 through 8 so it's on the first day of the third month after the Israelites came out of Egypt on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai and after they set out from Rephidim they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together We will do everything that the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now we're going to focus primarily today on verses five through seven. But as an aside, I just want us to focus for one moment here on a specific observation that that we can glean something enormously important from. Look with me at verses 4 and 8. So God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then in 8, we see the people all responded together, we'll do everything that the Lord has said. Notice that 5 through 7 is sandwiched in between these two. To statements. Okay, and what I want us to understand is God in His goodness right now is about to invite Israel into a covenant. And if you don't know what a covenant is, it's kind of like a, a partnership or an agreement. And in the weeks to come, He's going to give them the stipulations. Of that agreement. So, for those of us who maybe work in the marketplace or are familiar with certain contracts, you know that a contract has specific uh, agreement stipulations, and that's exactly what's going to happen here for Israel in their partnership with God. Except we know those stipulations as the law. But before we even get to the law, in this preliminary moment in the text where God is going to tell them what will result if they follow him, there's this recognition that God is the main focus of the text. Verse four highlights super clearly the reason that they are even at the foot of this mountain at all. The reason why why they've even made it here, where they're even out of Egypt, where they're even able to enter into this partnership is because of everything that God had done and nothing that they had done. Notice the language that's used. I carried you out on eagle's wings. He says, I brought you to myself. And then in verse 8, we see that the Israelites, they respond to God's goodness even prior to understanding the stipulations of the covenant. So they're responding to God's goodness and saying, we want to be in a partnership with you. It's not about what they have to do. It's about who God is. So, so let me say it again. It's important that we get this. It's about who's inviting them into the covenant. It's not about what the covenant stipulations are yet. This is thoroughly God-focused. And this is valuable for us to recognize because what we don't want to do is see Israel at the foot of the mountain and God inviting them into a covenant and think that for some reason Israel is the poster child of obedience to Yahweh. But I also want us, on the other hand, to see that despite the fact that Israel has some pretty severe flaws that we'll touch on momentarily here, what we see is that if they obey God, consider what he says he's going to do with them. It's pretty profound. I think it has implications for us as well. So verses five and six, God says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders and the people and told them, the words of the Lord. Now these verses is where I want us to kind of dial in and focus down. I'm gonna ask you a question here. Notice with me in verse five, it says, if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then, then out of all of the nations, you will be a treasured possession. So there's the if, and then there's the then. Okay, when you see an if and a then in the biblical text, what does that mean about the statement? Thanks, Tyler. Good for you, man. There you go. Right. Okay. So it means that the statement and the covenant is conditional. It's meaning that if they obey God, this will be the result. But if Israel continues to walk in rejection to Yahweh, then they will not get these benefits that he's named out for them. Now, that's not saying that God's purposes won't be fulfilled, because they still will be, but Israel won't fully live into their call at the end of the day. When we talked about the uh, Sermon on the Mount a, a little bit back, we were talking about Jesus offering the abundant life to his people. This is exactly what is happening here for Israel. God is offering to them the abundant life that he has for them, if they they will obey him. So that's one of the questions we're left with as we continue in the storyline. Okay, is Israel going to live into their call? But the focus of the text here is not on if Israel rejects Yahweh, but if they obey him. So we're gonna stick to that and we're gonna highlight that. And the text gives us three things that will be the result of Israel's obedience to God in this covenant. It says, if they obey him, they'll be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. If we're going to look at these in categories or practically, it's as if they obey him that there will be a change in their identity, a change in their lifestyle, and a change in their role or how they fit into the mission of God. So we're going to break these down one at a time here. First one is he says they will be a treasured possession. So if they obey him, that there's going to be a change in their identity. Now this means that Israel as a nation is going to be the personal property of their King Yahweh. Let me show you a passage from 1 Chronicles here, 29.3. It says, Besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures. So that, that phrase right there is the same language of treasured possession. Okay, of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and over everything I've provided for this holy temple. So the idea is that this is a king talking about his private personal property and in this text that we're reading, Yahweh, the king of Israel, is saying, you as a nation are my personal property. Not because of anything inherently valuable in them, but because of his graciously choosing them amongst a group of broken nations. Now this gets even more interesting though when we consider this in kind of the ancient Near Eastern context. Because what you would find in other ancient Near Eastern writings is that a king would be the treasured possession of his god meaning that the king would be specially valued and blessed and protected by his God. But what's radical is that as Yahweh invites Israel into this relationship with himself, it's not only applied to the king or the leader, but he says the entire nation is going to be my treasured possession. So this is God's way of saying, it's not just you, Moses. It's not just you, specific leader, who's under my special provision and, and care, but every single one of you Israelites is particularly special to me, and I care about you, and I will provide for you if you come and follow me. In other words, he's saying to every one of them, you now belong to me through this covenant. He gives them the lens through which they're supposed to see themselves, and they will then respond in relation to him, which leads to the next benefit of obedience to the covenant. It's that they will be a holy nation. So he gives them a change of identity if they come into this covenant. He also gives them a change in lifestyle. So they're going to be a holy nation. Okay, I want to take a moment, just for a second, to talk about the idea of of, uh, holiness for a second. Because I think that's a word that's still kind of used in in our day and in our age, uh, specifically in in church circles. But I think that we also might have a variety of ideas about what it looks like uh, to practically live out holiness. So we're going to talk about what it looks like biblically, theoretically, and then what it looks like biblically from a practical standpoint, okay? So when we talk about holiness, the Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. Everyone say kadosh. Great. So what it means for God to be kadosh is it's a specific characteristic that regards him being different. It regards him being something other than his creation. So what it means is that the tree that's outside of Elmwood is not part of God. It means that you are not inherently divine. You are not part of God. God is something completely different than the things that he had made. There is nothing at all like him. And when God, who is kadosh, who is holy, invites someone into a partnership with them or sets them apart for a specific purpose, they too, in the text, are labeled as holy. And we see that the way that God is going to do that through Israel is by them obeying his law. Now, ordinarily, we see that God commands specific individuals Like priests, when we get to the sacrificial system, if we think about uh, some of the texts in Exodus, but more of the book of Leviticus, right? He'll invite priests to be holy as they serve him. And we're gonna talk about priests in a moment here. But here, just like we were talking about the difference in the ancient Near East, how uh, there would be a king who'd be the treasured possession, now the nation is a treasured possession. Here, we see God not just setting apart one person as holy, but again, the entire nation is set aside for his purposes. Now for some of us, the idea of holiness might connotate uh, maybe being different than the culture around us or maybe pursuing a moral or physical purity Maybe you think of holiness in terms of the cultural divide that exists. Some of us might be familiar with the language of the sacred and the secular divide. And I think all of those are kind of valid expressions on some level that are layered in there around the idea of holiness. However, holiness throughout the scriptures is ultimately not the result of how God's people relate to the world. Okay, so it doesn't primarily have to do with me as one of God's people, how I interact with the world. It's primarily about how God's people relate to him, which results in everything else they do. Okay, so it's not that I relate to the world as holy. I set myself apart and then I come to God. It's God declares me holy and the result of that is how I might interact with the world. So when Israel is called holy, it's a status that they have from God As they obey him, which results with different implications of their life. Now, as they follow the law... They're definitely gonna look different from the other nations, and there's definitely gonna be places in their life that they're forced to forsake as they obey Yahweh. But the holy lifestyle is always an overflow of the covenant that's first made with God. It's not an attempt to gain something for from Him or to demonstrate our righteousness before Him. So it's a, a status that results from authentic relationship with them that they will grow in. And I was trying to think of an example of that, how this kind of relates today that you might understand. John gave me the example of marriage. I think it's a good one, so I'm gonna use it today. But, but holiness, in some sense, is kind of like marriage, okay? So I'm married to Holly, and that is a status that I have by nature of my covenant with her. It's not something I earn that I'm more married every day, it's I'm married to her, I'm in covenant, I'm in relationship, therefore conferred upon me is the fact that we're married. But included in this idea of being married to her is this idea of ongoing faithfulness and investment in relationship. So I'm married to her, but I grow in my marriedness by being in relationship with her. So it's not an action or a relationship, it's not either or, it's that they are intimately tied together. And in a similar way, when we think of the Israelites being given the status of a holy nation as they come into this special relationship with God, we have to recognize it's a very similar situation. The means through which they participate in the status of holiness is through ongoing faithfulness to the law. So they're declared holy and they demonstrate their holiness through obedience to the law. It's not that they follow the law or they have a relationship with God. It's that they have both. It's that the relationship to Yahweh looks like obedience to the law. And we're gonna get into the law in more detail starting next week. But let's recap for a second. So if Israel obeys God, they will be a treasured possession, change their identity. They'll be a holy nation. They'll be set apart in their lifestyle as a result of the status he's given them. And then finally, they will be a kingdom of priests, which has to do with the role or the place that they play in God's mission. Now, there's two words uh, that are worth considering, obviously, in this description uh, it's kingdom and it's priests, and both of them are kind of dripping with meaning from what we've already seen previously in the scriptures. So the idea of kingdom should echo back to the very beginning of Genesis, where God says to humans that they are to be fruitful and multiply, that they are to subdue and have dominion over the creation. Now this is rulership, language. Okay, this is you're stepping into kingship language. And so what's being said in Genesis is that there's a, a partnership with God in ruling over the creation that he made as they steward the creation that he made. Now, in tandem with this is priestly language, kingdom of priests, which has connotations of, of mediation. Because in the ancient world, what the priest would do is he would be the one who would go between the people and their God, okay? He would be that mediator. And now this idea of of mediation is not just being applied to one priest, but to the whole nation again. So what's being said is Israel is going to be the go between God and the rest of the nations. So this is just full of Genesis illustrations here but notice how all of these descriptions tie together to create just one holistic life for the people of Israel that is different than what they knew before but is completely submitted to God right he's going to give them a new identity which is going to result in a new type of life for them which as they do that will create a certain role as they participate with him in this covenant. Now, so what does this mean for Israel? Big picture. What, what is God trying to paint for them? And I think it's this. It means that as Israel, God's treasured and valued possession, as they obey the law, if they obey the law, which is gonna set them apart as holy and special to him, they will not just exist for themselves. But the goal is that they will point the rest of the world to Yahweh, which will bless them as well. So the plan is that as Israel obeyed Yahweh, the rest of the world will say, man, that God that they're serving, he really knows what he's talking about. He, he really knows how to provide for his people. He's really faithful to the partnership that he invited them into. I wanna follow that God too. They are are a demonstration of God's goodness. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, uh, then this should kind of ring with Genesis 12, one through three, where God says to Abraham, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, uh, your people, and your father's house to the land, I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And you'll be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So I want you to just notice Uh, a couple of things, the highlights are a little wonky on there, but Abraham is blessed so that, look at the bottom of God's promise, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so what's happening here in the text is this, God is saying, Israel, you are the descendants of Abraham. You are this people that I'm going to make you into, and as you come into covenant with me, Israel, you are the means through which that comes to fulfillment. You are the means through which my plans come true. This is a significant moment. That's why I want you to feel the weight of what happens when they show up at the foot of the mountain and God invites them into this. But the question that probably stands for some of us is how do we fit into this? How do we fit into what we're seeing happen to Israel here? Because that's exciting for Israel, but what impact does that have on any of us? How does that impact our lives? And what we find is that the place that it impacts with our lives is when we continue to follow Israel through the story. And we're going to do this in in more detail in the weeks to come. But, But here's a spoiler alert. We find that despite God's faithfulness to Israel over and over again, they do not live into this call like they could have. That conditional nature of the covenant, if they obey him, then they will be these things. The problem is that they don't obey him. And so they forfeit much of what God wanted to give to them. So the result is, is they don't experience the abundant life that God wanted to give them in that devoted relationship. And practically in Israel's life, it looks like turmoil, looks like strife. Eventually it looks like civil war as Israel divides. It goes into these whole depths of brokenness. But we get to the end of the Old Testament story where we're tracking with Israel and this covenant God had made and the fact that they had forfeited so much of the goodness of this covenant and we're left with the question of, God, why did you choose Israel in the first place? Why? Why did these people, of all of the people, the people who you, who you called stubborn, right? He calls them hard of heart. They're, he calls them a stiff-necked people. Why did he choose them? And as the Old Testament prophets start to talk about, there's still more to come. We're left wondering, God, what are you going to do to make all this Right? It appears that God's people had failed in their mission, but did they really? What are you going to do, God? How are you going to bring the other nations in to a restored relationship if the specific people that you called holy can't even be in a restored relationship? What are you going to do? And as we enter into the New Testament, we find great comfort in the fact that even though Israel struggled over and over and over again, God used them in order to bring about the means by which our world would be made new. And it wasn't done through the entire nation, but it was done through one specific Israelite, Jesus. You see, as I alluded to, Israel is really screwed up. They really, really struggle. And what we find is that the, the commands that God, God gives them, despite the fact that the, the external commands were meant to give them abundant life, there was something internally in them that was broken, that needed a deeper fix, that needed deeper transformation if they were really going to be faithful to their God. We've seen time and time again in Exodus how they complain when they don't get what they want. We see that they push back on Moses and his leadership. We even see later in the story that they're gonna continue, even after God's gonna ask them in the Ten Commandments, do not worship other gods. They're going to persist in doing it. Here's Joshua twenty four fourteen. This is after they get to the promised land. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all, all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So they're in the promised land, about to go in and conquer it, and Joshua still has to tell them, put away the gods. Stop worshiping things that can never satisfy you. They are severely compromised. And yet as we enter into the New Testament, we find that just as God is going to come down and dwell on the mountain to be with his people, God again took on flesh to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus. We see that Jesus came to fulfill not just everything that Israel failed to be, but everything that we would fail to be As well, because it's not just Israel who has rebelled against their Creator. And as we look upon Israel, we're reminded that it has nothing to do inherently with them. It has everything to do with the riches of God's mercy. And as we look at our own lives, as we look at our weaknesses and our temptations, the ways that we fail over and over again, the way that we fall short, as we look at the brokenness of our world and we realize that we need a savior, we need something different. As we see glimpses of Israel in ourselves, the Bible tells us that the riches of God's mercy are not just available to Jew. But Gentile, to all people in Christ, it is freely available to us now that Jesus has come. The Bible says that for all who turn from their sin, we call this repentance, and trust in Christ, the God-man, the perfect Israelite, the Israelite that fulfilled what Israel could not do, we come into a new covenant where the only condition of that covenant is faith. That we would trust in this God-man who did what we could not do for ourselves. And in him, we receive his perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness that only God himself could fulfill, and it's given to us in undeserving people. And the result of this is profound The result is that we're restored in relationship to God and therefore we inherit eternal life. That abundant life that God was wanting to give to Israel that they forfeited through their disobedience, when we trust in Christ and follow him, we too inherit the abundant life that God has for us. And as the apostle Peter will will later affirm, he applies this title of, of holy nation, a royal priesthood, not just to a bunch of Jewish believers, in Jesus, but to the entire church, to all of us, that in Christ, we pick up the baton of this mission that Israel was initially set out on as a holy priestly people, as we mediate, as we go out and represent Jesus to a world that desperately needs him, as we call them to repent and follow him. Now as we come to take communion as in response to the gospel and as we worship in response to what Jesus has done, I want to encourage you to consider a few things and it's going to follow the kind of line uh, of reasoning that God gave to Israel, the identity, the lifestyle and the role. Here it is. Number one, is your identity truly grounded in Christ? Is he the reason why you do what you do? Is he the starting place and the end of why you do everything about your life? Does he inform everything about you? Because the Bible is clear. If our identity is not grounded in Jesus... Then the fruit of our life is going to continue to be brokenness and a lack of satisfaction. We are going to ground ourselves in something or someone else. It's not if we will worship something, right? It's what will we worship? And if we're not worshiping Jesus, then we're not going to find the results of the abundant life that God truly has for us. One way that you maybe can discern if your identity is truly grounded in Christ is asking, What am I thinking on the most? What am I dwelling on the most? What am I most concerned about in my day-to-day life? Who am I trying to please the most? If it's someone or something other than Jesus, then maybe your identity is grounded somewhere else. Number two, is your lifestyle congruent with an identity grounded in Christ? In Christ, as I said, we pick up that baton of the mission that Israel was initially set out on. We are made the holy people of God, but, but just like Israel We are declared holy as we're made righteous in Christ, but how is that played out? Through obedience to God himself, right? We don't want to be incongruent. We don't want to uh, not practice what we preach, in other words, right? So I want to encourage you to consider the ways that you are growing in holiness, ways that you you might be doing this really well, but maybe ways that you might need to recalibrate or or turn back to God or pick up certain practices of spiritual formation that, that help you to grow in holiness as you are faithful to Christ. And number three, uh, are you living into your new role as as a priest of God to the world? Now some of us, particularly maybe from a Catholic background, have have connotations of, of priest in our mind. But all I mean when I'm talking about priest is are you representing Christ to our world with a winsome boldness? And how are you doing that? Are you going to your neighbors on behalf of Christ and sharing about him? And then are you going to God himself in the name of Christ and praying for them? Okay, Are you being the go-between between between God and your neighbors? How are you representing him well? Friends, as we come to the Lord's table today, I just want to remind us. We hear all of this stuff, and I, I... I want us to feel the weight. I want us to feel the privilege and and the beauty that, that the church, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ has the amazing opportunity to step into this mission that God was beginning to play out with Israel here. But I want us to also be encouraged by the idea that we do not do this alone, that as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, we remember that for those in Christ, we have the promise that just like God came to dwell on the mountain, just like God took on flesh in Christ, he now dwells for all in all those who would trust in Christ. God's spirit works in us, not just to make us more holy, not just to make us more into the image of Jesus and help us to follow him, but to help us to serve as his ambassadors, as, as a special possession, those who are valued to God, whom he has set apart, whom he has made holy to partner with him, in this amazing mission to save our world. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, with our mind, and with our strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we look at Israel today and and we see the amazing privilege that they had of coming into this covenant which would transform everything about their way of life. And yet, in many ways, they forfeited what could have been. Lord, we do not want to be like that. And yet, as we look at Israel, we recognize that oftentimes we are exactly like that. So often you call us and we respond in disobedience instead of willingness. So often you desire us to go a certain way and we would rather do things our own way. Lord, would you please forgive us? Would you help us as your spirit works within us, as we follow his leading, would you help us to be your holy people? Would you help us to see ourselves as your treasured possession? And would you help us to be a kingdom of priests to a world that needs Jesus? Lord, in your mercy, forgive what we have been that has not pleased you. Would you help us to amend what we are by your spirit and would you direct what we shall be as we go out? so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.